0: Thank you for tuning into episode 50, the Big Five O of the Virtual Couch. I'm your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified mindful habit coach, writer, speaker, husband, father for ultramarathon runner, and creator of the Path Back, an online pornography addiction recovery program that is helping people reclaim their lives from pornography addiction. If you or somebody that you know is struggling with pornography addiction, please point them to PathBackRecovery.com. And there you can download a short ebook that describes five common mistakes that people make when trying to overcome pornography addiction. Again, that's PathBackRecovery.com. And uh, just we'll get the business out of the way quickly, please take a moment to subscribe or rate, review the podcast. If you feel so inclined, like the Tony Overbay Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist Facebook page, Um, sign up to find out more about some exciting programs that I'm working on. I'm I'm getting close to launching a couple of those, and uh, you can do that at TonyOverbay.com. There's a place there to enter your email address, and I won't sell that, and I won't spam you or do anything like that, Um, but you'll find out more about these programs as they become available. And also, I would just encourage you to continue to um, check out BloomForWomen.com to learn more about their groundbreaking, it's, it's evidence-based work on betrayal trauma, whether the betrayal is from the physical affair of a spouse or an emotional affair, um, or if you've learned of a spouse's addiction that maybe you're unaware of, bloomforwomen.com has a community there that will help you find healing and help you find hope. And just so you use the coupon code or the code virtual couch, all one word, and you get a month's free access to their site. And, uh, and one more quick one, um, don't forget to visit Eli's Extracts, E-L-I-S-E-X-T-R-A-C-T-S, Dot com and use coupon code virtual Couch all one word, for 25% off their all-natural organic shade cream scented with essential oils. There, the business is done. So let's get on with the show. So I am solo on the mic today, and I'm really excited about it. When when I actually had set out to do the virtual couch a long time ago, um, I really thought that I would have more of these solo shows where I just wanted to kind of talk about some of the things that I see in therapy and some of the things that I just, uh, I wanna share. And then the response was was great. And so I, I started getting a lot of um uh, people that were willing to come on the show and talk about um, books and, and thoughts and uh, programs that they're doing, and so I haven't really got to as many of these. So I want to, I want to do a few of these. I've got a list of topics that I want to cover at some point. Um, but let me, let me kind of ease into this one. Although I know that you've probably already read the description and it's right in the title, I'm sure. But when you think of some of the greatest duos in any arena of all time, I'm kind of curious what you think of. I almost wish this was interactive at this point. So whether it's uh, Tom and Jerry or Batman and Robin or Han Solo and Chewy or Burgers and Fries or Mac and Cheese. Um, I'm sure that now that you're kind of warmed up, there's plenty more that come to mind. I I am really curious. Actually, I've never done this before, but uh, when I put this out on the Facebook page, it'd be interesting if people would kind of comment on what came to their mind first. Um, But the duo that I'm talking about today, unfortunately, isn't one of those that probably brought you a bit of a smile or a nice memory. Uh, I'm talking about a destructive duo that I deal with on a daily basis in my practice. And to be completely vulnerable, it can play a role in my own life. And uh, and I think it's kind of one of these things that isn't necessarily so spoken about enough, and that's the duo known as guilt and shame. So a little bit of story time. There's a type of therapy that I remember learning about in school where you externalize a problem. So you kind of bring it outside of your core being. Let me give you an example. And, and by the way, it's called narrative therapy. And so it's it's really productive. Um, it's where you are not defined by your problem, but you you recognize when the problem is kind of descending upon you is the way that I always viewed it. Um, it's also called diffusion in my therapy modality of choice, acceptance and commitment therapy, also known as its acronym ACT. But with narrative therapy, you are not the angry person. Anger, externalized, descends upon you when a certain set of criteria or triggers are in place. So some of those being our our old friend, here's the acronym I love HALT, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, or if your financial situation isn't good, or you're not happy in your marriage or your job, that sort of thing. Uh, and, And this is a big one that I use a lot when I am working with addiction also. So when I'm working with, let's just go with the one you hear at the beginning of every virtual couch episode, pornography, addiction. Uh, A lot of people just feel such horrible guilt and shame around this um, about that addiction. But oftentimes, if we externalize it, we can identify when you know, pornography kind of comes knocking at the door. A lot of times it's when someone isn't doing a lot of the daily things that they they would like to be doing, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's uh, mindfulness practice, uh, spiritual um, prayer, or reading scriptures, or exercising, or communicating, that sort of thing. We can already look at when some of those things aren't in place, then that's when we know that this pornography is going to come knocking at the door. A lot of times in narrative therapy too, when you externalize something, you, you give it a name, and so I can't help but do alliteration a lot of times. So pornography is often Pete or Paul or something like that. And I've mentioned scrupulosity on a previous podcast and that one's Sam. Um, but so, so, you know, that's a ne- kind of an easier way to talk about th- things at times of, you know, Hey, did, uh, was, uh, was Pete around today, you know, and somebody then can say he, boy, uh, I knew, I knew he was trying to find me. Um, but, uh, but I was able to keep him away, but I kind of digress. I bring up narrative therapy because when I first learned of narrative therapy, Uh, At the time, I think I was writing my humor column in a local newspaper and just doing a lot of writing. And so the writer in me came out and I locked in on the word narrative. So in narrative therapy, I I immediately assumed was a way to tell a story about a therapeutic principle. Now, again, uh, that is not what narrative therapy is. But I remember when I had this incorrect view of narrative therapy, one of the first narratives that I created was this was it was about this destructive duo, guilt and shame. So um, here's how it went. And. It, guilt, for the purpose of this narrative, was viewed as a stop sign of sorts. So, and actually, let me give you a little quick bit of background on guilt and shame. So, a lot of times, the automatic negative thoughts that people tell themselves is that guilt should be able to keep them from doing anything wrong or keep them from um, repeating a wrong. In the addiction world, they often believe that guilt should keep them sober. But the reality is, is that when your focus is on the guilt then you're starting to head actually down a path toward relapse. So guilt and shame are actually kind of similar emotions, but you need to learn how to recognize the differences. They are they are key. Uh, Guilt is feeling bad about something that you've done or even something that you haven't done. You might feel guilt for for getting a birthday or a holiday or for cutting somebody off on the freeway or for getting a speeding ticket or wrecking a car or eating an entire bag of Reese's eggs, which you know, that is, that happens a little far too often for me. Um, That's guilt. So again, guilt, normal, it's a human emotion, but it's when we dwell in the guilt that we start down this slippery slope, because here's where shame comes into play. So shame takes guilt up to like an 11 on a scale of one to 10, rather than just saying that something you did wasn't good, or it wasn't your intention. Then shame says that the reason you did that, or you didn't do what you were supposed to do is because you are bad. You are flawed. You're a bad husband, you're a bad father, you're a bad employee. And once shame starts going, shame is extremely aggressive. Shame's goal is to pummel you. Uh, shame is going to try and continue to hit you. It doesn't care if you're down, if you're on the mat, if you're against the ropes, um, it's going to kick you. It's going to throw things at you. And oftentimes what what is just horrible, it just will not stop until you feel completely defeated and helpless and hopeless. So when you think shame is done, then you kind of try to stand up and it'll attack again. Um, oh, by the way, you're, you're short and you're bald and you forget to wear a belt to work. And I, I think I brought that one up on an, on an earlier one. I, I, how you know, I literally came to work many times. Um, um, just cause my shirt was untucked when I left and I ended up running over to a store and buying a belt. And so I now own five or six belts. Now that's a silly example of this, but guilt is like, man, I just got to remember to, you know, uh, got to remember to wear my belt. I, it sounds silly really five or six times in years, I promise. Um, and it's not like my pants are falling down in the middle of a session, but, uh, I, I look at that and there's some data I could pull from that. There's guilt, you know, a little bit of guilt. Uh, okay. Maybe I need to write a note on the mirror that says, you know, belt, you know, that sort of thing, wear belt or that. Um, But the shame is the part that's going to tell me that I am a horrible person because I have to because I forget because I have to go grab a belt or whatever that is. Um, So, again, dwelling in guilt Will typically lead to shame. And then you're heading down that slippery slope to hopelessness. It leads to automatic negative thoughts and negative downward spiraling thoughts. Which and if I you know if I want to carry that out too in my line of work, when people feel hopeless or when they feel helpless, a lot of times that leads to self-sabotage or it leads to isolation, which feeds more shame and guilt. And a lot of times isolation and guilt and shame, these are the things that then feed addiction. Whether, and I'm not just talking pornography addiction, I'm talking alcohol or food addictions or um, any of those those things where you don't want to deal with that those emotions guilt and shame and so you want to kind of tune out check out not deal with them so back to the narrative of guilt and shame so I had this thing uh I had this thing worked worked out I mean let's so here we go here's here's the narrative of guilt and shame so let's say you forget to get your spouse a present and it's their birthday now granted if you listen to the love language podcast maybe their or your love language is not gift giving so it's no big deal but for the sake of the narrative Let's just say you like giving gifts and your partner likes receiving gifts and you forgot. So here comes guilt. And man, I, I promise you I am the world's worst actor and I and I hear it whenever I even try to do something on my podcast. So forgive me. Uh hopefully the point will be enough here. So uh here comes guilt, nice enough guy, average height, wearing jeans, maybe a nice collared shirt. And he says, Oh man, that yeah, that's kind of a bummer. Oh boy, yeah. I hope she's cool with that. But I mean, you know, just tell her, be honest, seriously, uh, tell her that you forgot the gift. I, I know it feels bad right now, um, but it's okay. It's not the end of the world. You know, I'm, I'm almost kind of glad you feel a little something there because if not, then that would be a problem. So I hope you kind of get the point there. So guilt, you know, it can play a role. Um, it can kind of bring something to your attention, but then, and guilt is even trying to be cool, right? Guilt's trying to say, hey, come on, you know, what do we learn here? We, we don't have to do this again here was this guy around the corner. Uh, guilt looks up and goes, oh, no, 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 not you. And then here's Shame. And don't ask me why, but he's dressed like the Fonz from Happy Days in the old days. Before we found out that the actor who plays him, Henry Winkler is like the world's nicest guy apparently. But uh, Shame has a leather jacket, his hair slicked back, and he's saying to Guilt, and I will not go into accents or anything like that. But he says to Guilt, you know, hey, I promise. I told you I'd be cool. Seriously, no big deal. But then he walks by you and he kind of whispers in your ear, but man, seriously, dude, like you forgot your wife, you forgot getting her something and it's her birthday. Ooh, I don't know. What does that say about you? And then guilt, here's what shame's saying to you. And he's like, Hey, hey! seriously, the guy gets it. No big deal. He's going to deal with it regardless of what happened, you know, that led up to him forgetting where he is or, or, or for him forgetting where we are here and now is where we are. So let's just learn and move on. Um, next time he'll set a reminder or something in a few days ahead, Right. And then you look over at guilt and you're like, yeah, yeah, right. I, I should have done that. And then shame's like, oh, yeah, yeah, boy, but there's a lot of things you should have done. I bet that's the story of your life. You know, uh, the, your memoir will be called Things I Should Have Done by you. So the difference, and I could go on and on with this narrative, but I hopefully you get the point. So the difference, hopefully, that you can see is that we're we're going to experience guilt. Again, it's an emotion. And up to a point, it can actually be productive. Um, what is the takeaway? What can we do differently to avoid to the best of our ability, feeling that guilt again. But shame, I want you to remember this. Shame is destructive. It's toxic. It leads to a feeling of hopelessness. It leads us to isolate. And again, leads us on to addiction. Uh, that, That feeling that is not productive for us. And you might even be thinking right now, okay, but there's some times where I think a good old dose of shame is going to do me some good. And uh, boy, I just had a tangent in my mind here where we could talk about going back to parenting and talking to our kids. And, you know, do we recognize when we are, you know, bringing a little bit of awareness, maybe some guilt, <laughs> but even that feels weird to say, or when we are shaming them thinking that, okay, but they need to know this and they need, and this is what's going to teach them. Cause I, I promise you that is not a productive way to communicate. Um, Let me go a little bit. Let's go a little deep dive into research now. So Helen Lewis wrote a book back in 1971 that was groundbreaking at the time in the world of the effects of guilt and shame. It was called Shame and Guilt and Neurosis. And uh, and I don't know if you're going to go look for it on Amazon. I did, but it's out of print and they're collector's editions now and they're like 200 bucks each. Um, But in the book, Lewis said that when somebody feels bad about the behavior they exhibited, they're experiencing guilt. And so that's kind of where we that's where we're working from. And when somebody feels bad about who they are as a person because of the behavior, They exhibited than their experience in shame. So and I found that most academics and psychologists and therapists subscribe to Lewis's framework of shame and guilt. That is so that while this framework is generally accepted, sometimes there are some other theories about the two emotions. So doing a little bit more of a deep dive, I found uh, I really like this piece by a guy named a gentleman named Stephen Bergloss. He's a psychiatrist, he's an executive coach, um, and a management consultant. So psychiatrist, um, that is an MD, he can prescribe medications, he had a very or has a very successful private practice, but he also does executive coaching and management. Management consulting. So I like his pedigree. But he says the moment most people feel guilt, um, then shame. Their psychic defenses move in to deny, repress, and ultimately suppress awareness of it. So what that means is that when most of most of us have this pattern, when we feel guilt, and then here comes the shame, we're actually to the point now where we don't even want to deal with it at all, and so we suppress any awareness of it. So this, of course, according to Berglass, says he does nothing to resolve it, which is why he describes guilt as a as radioactive waste of the psyche. He says you can bury it, but it's guaranteed to leach through the barrier you put between it and your cognitive control panel to ultimately mess up your life in a variety of ways. So I kind of put that in there because you've got this guilt and shame and there might be some people who feel like, you know what, I'm numb. I don't even care. Um, about the things that are going on in my life, or my behaviors, or that sort of thing. And so, if you're to that point, I think that Berglass's point is very, very good, where he says that it's this, it's this radioactive waste of the psyche. So you can bury it, you can stuff it, but it's going to leach through the barrier you put between it and your cognitive control panel. That's important because that's one of those kind of things where I deal with a lot of people who say, okay, you know, here I am again in this bad situation, and I just want to ignore it. And from this point forward, I'm going to move forward, and I'm not going Going to do whatever the behavior is again or whatever the thing is again. But in reality that if you don't deal with it, if you kind of don't have this moment where you finally kind of stand up for yourself and say enough, I'm moving forward, I'm being honest, um, I'm going to unburden myself. then as Berglas said, it, it becomes to kind of just seep through this barrier and it does make its way into other areas of your life. Um, Freud, Sigmund Freud argued that slips of the tongue or accidents were almost always symptoms of suppressed guilt, breaking free from a would-be containment. Uh, You no doubt have heard about the Freudian slip, right? I have to tell you, some men uh, call their wives mom, and I know it's in relation to them, their wives being mother of their children. But in my office, they'll often be telling some story and they say, and then mom said, and and then I move to clarify. Now, your mom Or your wife. And then you can see him almost wondering, uh-oh, is this guy psychoanalyzing me? And he thinks that I'm thinking that I have some secret attachment to my own mom? And and I don't think so in most of those cases, by the way. But so Berglas wrote that in his clinical and coaching experience, he said he's seen countless talented individuals derailed and denied successes they struggled long and hard to attain and disrupted in their interpersonal affairs by their unwillingness or inability to face guilty feelings. Uh, And and he says, and I agree, why this is so must be examined on a case by case basis. That's the part where you can go somewhere and hear a nice motivating talk that says go and be honest and vulnerable and go get them. And then you can come home and it's like, okay, I'm going to change my life. And you wake up the next day and then here's this just. Kind of heavy feeling um, that is is unresolved guilt or unresolved shame. So that's the part where I, I really do believe that when we put those things behind us and we say, "I just I'm not going to do it again." I mean, that's part of why you know I, I deal go back to this pornography recovery program I have. There are there are countless people that have stopped a whole bunch of times and they're never going to do it again, and then they do it again. So there are some unresolved issues there. And this is the part where I am, I beg you, uh, see somebody to help with not just that, but any of these unresolved guilt and shame issues because they start to leach through this this you know, barrier into your cognitive control panel, as the Stephen Berglas talked about. Um, so so he kind of, Berglass wrote a nice article and it was top five signs that you're suffering from repressed guilt. I just want to share a couple of the ones at the end, if that's okay. Um, he, he talked about number two was, uh, and then number one, the number one, maybe the top sign you're suffering from repressed guilt. But number two, he said guilt makes you paranoid. This one is huge. Um, he actually quoted Shakespeare. Shakespeare had another observation about guilt that bears repeating. He said, suspicion always haunts the guilty mind. The thief doth fear each bush and officer. It's deep. I don't think I've ever dropped some Shakespeare in my podcast. Um, But the point there is that if we are carrying around this unresolved guilt, uh, that is, you know, there's a nice cliche here that when people become open and honest and authentic and vulnerable and all those wonderful things, that you no longer have to kind of keep track of your stories. Because that's that part where over time, that is going to going to leach through into your cognitive control panel you are going to get caught in essence you're going to um, whether people then even call you out on it or not you're going to lose some of this face or some of this ground that you've built um, in this this inner wealth or character so uh, guilt makes you paranoid it's and I can speak from from um, experience here where boy just being honest and open is is just amazing and I, I and I you know I forget that at times that's ta- that takes a lot of work to get to that point. And so I have clients all the time that are still trying to cover up you know one um, I just lies sound so dramatic, but one lie with another lie with another lie, even if they were meant with the best of intentions. Um, so those are feelings I, I believe that's unresolved guilt. So he says, if you're guilty, burglars says if you're guilty, the odds are you fear that anyone and everyone that you need to deal with is basically out to get you. He said that this is caused by projection, and that is huge in my world. Projection is another uh, psychic defense mechanism that can temporarily serve to rid you of upsetting feelings. That's where you're saying, well, I'm not the untrustworthy one. You know, that guy is the one that's uh, burglars says a double dealing snake. Projection is when I'm not willing to own my own stuff, but I'm willing to project it onto you or anyone around me. Because we're so worried that if we own our own stuff, the, the, whatever we've done that maybe makes us feel guilty, if we own it, then everyone's going to abandon us and think that we're horrible human beings. But the problem is, again, I go back to the more we don't own these things or deal with this repressed guilt, uh, the more the people around us are actually kind of, I believe, picking up on um, that baggage that we're carrying of guilt and shame. But I like what he said. He said, number one, guilt can sabotage your success. Uh, Bergla said, there's no getting around it. Many people who harbor feelings of guilt will not allow themselves to succeed. A major cause of this type of self-defeating behavior and others is the rationale that if you are the one that is meeting out punishment for heinous offenses, uh, you not only take the wind out of the sails of those who would gladly tear you up, um, but you administer more benign punishments to boot. So he said, hating what you did or wish to do or fantasized about doing can really get you down on yourself. So much so that denying yourself an award or a prize or an achievement seems like a small price to pay. And I see this often where people will, they feel like, well, I've, I've, I don't know, I haven't been honest or haven't been as forthright as I need to be. So, you know, it's just not in the cards for me to go after that promotion or somebody else gets something that's really okay because there's all these things that I've done. And just the problem with that system of justice is that it doesn't work. Because you still haven't done what it takes to resolve the guilt and, and honestly, you'll likely repeat that cycle of coming close to making it and then going bust again. And so, again, deal with that. Resolve that guilt. Berglas said, The good news is that resolving, resolving guilt permanently, as in one declarative statement away, and need not involve decades of psychoanalysis. Um, He said, as Oscar Wilde observed, it is the confession, not the priest, that gives the absolution. This is where honesty and authenticity are necessary to move forward from guilt and avoid the toxicity of shame. Now, it sounds like I might have just uh, gone back on what I was saying there, that there needs to be some deep work. But I think that Berglas is basically saying that there has to be a step one. And and that step one is um, it's own, own what you've done. Own your guilt. Um, one declarative statement can do that. But And if you're not ready to do that, then do. Go see somebody to talk about this. So let's summarize. Guilt and shame. Uh, guilt, not always a bad guy, though you might feel like you deserve to feel shame for your actions. Punish, punishing yourself absolutely does not do anything good or productive. Punishing yourself doesn't help the people that you might have hurt, and nor does it help yourself for that matter. Okay. Well, you just watched like in a moment. Hang on now. I got to find... Uh, I had a whole bunch of research around here that just made me think of something though of if, if you are still kind of stuck on this, wait, oh, can, can shame be productive or, or how, did, how does guilt, how is guilt productive? I did find, this was a super deep dive. Um, this is one study that's examined the psychological processes that led guilt to be a pro-social emotion. So for the sake of what we're about to talk about, pro-social meaning um, it's positive emotion, that it can be for good in, a, in social currency, in the social environment. This is by Grayton and Rick, 2017. So pretty fresh too. The researchers found that feelings of guilt led people to pay more attention to what's called reparatory stimuli. So uh, that just means um, lo- looking for ways to, to fix a problem. So when they felt guilt, um, matter of fact, it says such as words like help, apologize and fix um, than any other type of stimuli. So importantly, these researchers also found that guilt led participants to feel more positively about these reparatory stimuli, making them more desirable. That's a, just a, a fancy way of saying that they found that there were times where somebody felt bad and then bringing that to their attention or them owning it, then they were more receptive to the words like help, apologize, and fix than they than they would have been before that. So bringing this guilt or awareness to them, now they were ready to work in this arena of help and apology and fixing. So in other words, it found that the feelings of guilt led people to pay more attention. I, I just gave you in other words. Now I'm reading from the, the study in other words. Um, That guilt led people to pay more attention to pro-social reparatory concepts. So meaning that they're willing to do something about their guilt. And it also led people to feel better about these concepts. So the underlying processes may explain exactly why feelings of guilt lead people to pro-social reparatory behaviors. So here, this one gets a little deeper. Another study examined the pro-social role of guilt and moral comparisons. So researchers found that when people were encouraged to think about times when somebody was more moral than them in their daily life, like for example, if they were kind of thinking through their day and somebody had given up their bus seat for an older person um, when the participant of the study had not, then they felt guilty. Then they also found, though, that this guilt played a pro-social role. So encourage the participant to act more morally in the future. So that's kind of cool. So that's where people do see that they, they missed an opportunity where they watch someone be more uh moral than them, that that that's a type of guilt that has led them the next time they see a uh, an elderly woman standing in a crowded bus where they're the ones that are going to give up their seat. So that's again, that's a nice, um, productive thing. Here's the cool part, though, a meta analysis. So now we're going to go even deeper into a deep study examining shame found that the prevailing view that shame is always antisocial and leads to avoidance. So that's kind of what we're we're selling here today, that shame, you know, always leads this isolation said it's incomplete. That's a fancy research way of saying not always correct. So this meta analysis revealed that in certain situations, um, when the damage that has been done in some some sort of event seems irreparable, then shame does indeed lead to avoidance and antisocial behavior. This is kind of a big deal. So think about when you're parenting someone, and if you have shamed them to the point where they feel like, and you even maybe have said that hey, there's nothing we can do about it now, that's when shame is going to do its worst damage. I, think about that. So when when we present people with there is nothing else we can do about this, boy, just hand them their ticket to uh, you know the shame amusement park and tell them they've got a, a full day pass and they get to the front of the line all day. So, when the damage is repairable, however, shame can lead to the same pro-social and constructive behaviors as guilt. So, meaning that if they feel there is hope there, we we can stop that shame cycle and we can actually pull out of that and then use that as a teaching moment. So in less serious situations where damage is repairable, guilt and shame both make a person feel bad, but then they can also motivate that person to fix the situation to feel better. In more serious situations, though, where the damage seems less repairable, guilt and shame both still make the person feel bad, but only guilt can motivate the person to fix the damage as much as they can. And then shame leads to avoidance of the damage. So this kind of indicates that shame as a pro is, is, is it can be as prosocial as guilt in some, but not all situations. Sorry for the super nerdy deep dive there, but I mean, that's, kind of some pretty cool stuff. So, I mean, I pulled out of that that you know, we don't want to tell somebody that, that it's hopeless because of what they did. There's nothing they can do about it. We want to try to, to find some window of opportunity to, to fix because we want people to feel like they can Goes right back to those podcasts I've done on EFT and on Nurtured Heart, and all of this stuff just starts to play together. Where we want people to feel like, again, they can come and tell us about anything, even if it's something that they feel guilty about, or even more so that they feel shame about. And again, what these what these studies show, I believe, is that you bet guilt can play a role. But then, when guilt when when we ruminate on guilt, or when we let guilt overtake us, or we focus on the guilt, and then it leads to shame. Uh, Now we're heading down that path of of destructive and isolation, although we now know that if we still can see some hope and we're willing to do something about our shame, um, admit it, work with it, uh, confess it, talk about it, and, and we give somebody a window of hope, then that shame can even be built upon. Okay, boy, that was, uh, that was, I think I was right in the middle of kind of starting to sum, summarize this whole thing. So let's, let's try that again. I promise I'll stay right on track. No amount of self-punishment will ever feel like enough for the person who feels like if they just live in this world of shame. Um, and then people get caught up in this cycle of reliving bad memories and engaging in negative self-talk. Because when people start to feel bad, and this is where I go back to that, you know, shame wants to just beat you up and just um, knock any bit of hope out of you. That's the part where once you, and now I go back to my concept on the emotional baseline. When your baseline all of a sudden hits low, really low, then I feel like it just kind of implodes on itself. And that's when people just feel like it does not matter what I do. There's just no hope, no, you know. And so that's the part where shame-based thinking is just ultimately destructive. It eats away at your self-worth and it causes anxiety and depression and feelings of hopelessness. So remember, it's normal to have feelings of guilt. You're a human. If you didn't have those feelings, that's the part I love about doing therapy with people, where if you didn't have those feelings, that's the part I'd be worried about. Um, And not even worried. (laughs) Now let's say that somebody's listening to that and they're like, hey, I actually don't have those feelings. We can work with that too. We just want you to acknowledge what is going on, what your reality is. Um... But when dealing with guilt, it's important, here we go back to that word acknowledge, acknowledge the feelings, listen to them, learn from them, sit with them, um, but do not let them um, overtake you. They are, they are data. Ha- after you've absorbed the lesson, now it's time to release those thoughts or they're going to stand in the way of any type of recovery. Um, release the thoughts. Here's where the mindfulness work comes in. Here's where a thought is just a thought is just a thought. Here's where we got to be doing that daily mindfulness work. Right now, um, find an app. I'm a I'm a I'm a Headspace guy. There's Calm.com. There's a lot of different apps out there, or websites you can go to that do a nice um, secular mindfulness based, uh, maybe daily meditation where you're learning how to do some nice breathing techniques that are going to lower your heart rate and tell your brain that we're not in fight or flight mode anymore. And that, you know, it's going to release this nice, uh, the feel good chemicals of the brain to relax. And so you're doing that, you're doing that work and then you're spending some time letting your thoughts go and then kind of bringing them back to, 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 to focus, to center, to present. And I know this can sound a little bit cheesy at this point, but that's the part. So we got to work on because you're going to have these thoughts. You're going to have these feelings. Are they productive? And once we identify that they're not because of all the things we talked about on this podcast, still, they're going to be able to say, now what do I do with them? And that's the part where the mindfulness activities are going to allow you to move that thought through your head. Just move it on through because guess what? There are dozens and dozens and dozens of thoughts lined up that are waiting to take that thought's place. So, um, we gotta, we gotta learn how to move those through. And, and then once you did that, it, you can move toward releasing your feelings of guilt by taking responsibility for the wrongs or the anything that you may have done. Admitting the mistakes you've made, apologizing for those mistakes, and then working hard to correct those mistakes with that data that you've been given, that is an amazing first step. Um, forgiveness, that's a huge part. We didn't even cover that, but that's a huge part of the process too, both in terms of um, seeking forgiveness from people that you've maybe hurt or wronged, but a bigger part of this, I think, is forgiving yourself for the things that you've done or said or uh, that sort of thing. That's the part where kind of Owning that, And it's uncomfortable at first. You bet it is. But man, I have in my personal life and in my practice, and I, I can't even count the number of times where then people have had incredibly positive experiences where they've gone to someone and apologized or said, hey, this is this is something that I did that you may not have even been aware of. And uh, and it's just nice to kind of unburden that from you. That's a way to get that guilt off your chest so that the shame doesn't come running through. And of course, I um, this is so much easier said than done overcoming shame on your own. A lot of people do feel like it's, um, did a little bit of research and especially in the addiction world where they kind of feel like that's almost impossible because in order to process it, you really do need to be able to talk about it ideally in a safe, uh, in a safe setting, therapeutic setting, something like that. Um, but, uh, but that's, that's imperative. It's important. There's uh, Brene Brown. If you've read any of her books, they're all about being vulnerable. And some uh, one of the websites I found called her a shame researcher said the following about shame. She said, the less you talk about it, the more you got it. Shame needs three things to grow exponentially in our lives. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. So she says uh, the empathy and the antidote to shame, the two most powerful words when we're in, in a struggle, are me too. So that's where we're kind of owning our own stuff so thank you so much for joining me on this episode I've been waiting to get to this one uh, i I guilt and shame let's uh let's move them on through okay let's use guilt as maybe a bit of a stop sign it can it can help us a little bit but once we start to dwell on it once we invite shame in and now I apologize if you've now thought of that narrative of shame in a leather jacket with uh, some sort of um, greasy hair product on, I don't know, <laughs> kind of lost it there. But if that's the uh, move, let's not even get to the shame part. Let's let's be aware of the guilt. Let's deal with the guilt. And if we do happen to get to that part of shame, um, let's look at that uh, pretty nerdy study that we did there that talked about, find hope, find a way out. And you're. And if you leave that to your own mind to do, I guarantee you at that point, you're not going to be thinking best case scenario. So get help, get help being able to process that. Thank you so much for joining me here on the virtual couch. I am overwhelmed and grateful for the support for the virtual couch podcast in general. And I look forward to providing you with as many of these episodes as I can for as long as I can. Guests, solo, you name it. Uh, and taking us away as per usual is the wonderful, talented Aurora Florence who is coming on the podcast pretty soon, I'm not going to lie with It's Wonderful
1: Compressed emotions flying past our heads and out the other end the pressures of the daily grind, it's wonderful elastic waist and Floating past the midnight hour They push us out The chance is yours to take Well, it's just might